as usual, we're going to be giving away a box of books at the end of this podcast to one of our Patreon supporters. So listen all the way to the end and you'll find out if you are one of the lucky winners of a box of books. always forget these gigs I do in North- I do two gigs in Northampton every year at the end of the year which, which are just fun oh that's so nice I, but I always forget them thank you but I've done, I've done them Wait, for like years now oh that's cool is it just you or do you have pals just me um, so I just do where do you do them at uh, normally at this cafe but it's shut now so we're doing it at this little theatre oh which cafe Town. was that NM oh. Cafe yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. so Tams and Joe were like the people who got me to start doing stand up yeah, well, they weren't kind of. They kind of. The ones start who, recording now, by the way. They're the ones who got. They were the ones who got go. me to carry on, not start. So I started, and then they got me to carry on, basically. Yeah, we are joined by uh, James Acaster on on book shambles with Robin and Josie. Robin uh, and Josie's book shambles. Yeah, both versions fine. Um, <laughs> and uh, we started the series with uh, Northampton's Alan Moore, and now we've moved into uh, well, I suppose even a little bit more kind of uh, exotic environment yeah. of uh, Kettering's. Uh, yeah, James A. Caster. Just a little tour around Northamptonshire. Very nice. Um, I saw you on uh, Tuesday uh, where we were involved in a screening of Whistle I'll Come To You and The Signalman. Yep. Uh, neither of which you saw because you had no. a very successful career and you decided I need to go on first and I've got a lot of stuff to do. Yeah, very um, successful in that I got invited to a party. Yeah, which, uh, which I think... By a friend. For me, <laughs> that party could have really got you, you on the gravy know. train. Yeah, right up there. It did sound like a really quite an important party. Did you do any deals there or anything? No, no sadly not. No, I, 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 know, oh. I, I do know uh, what you think my life is like, Robin. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, I went to the party and just uh, sat and talked to my girl. I, I found out while I was there that my Uber rating had gone down. Whoa! And that really, I, I, but here's the thing. You say whoa at that. Wait till you find out how it happened. So I was a five... Yeah, I was a five. That is. I wonder, I am. How do I? How do you find out your rating? I can talk you through it, but like it, it's uh, basically someone at the party knew how to check your rating. I, I knew I, I was a five last time I checked, which was like before my last Uber journey, and, <sighs> and I was like, I know what I am. I'm a five. It's great. And I looked four point six. I was like, how has this happened? And Rose, my girlfriend, was looking really guilty, and she said, right, the other day when you shared an Uber with uh, me and Nish, <sighs> we dropped off at yours, and then afterwards we went onto our house. We stopped at a petrol station and the guy had to wait for us for ages while we were in there. And then he gave us all a bad rating. So I got... My Uber rating has gone down because of other people's behaviour. Oh, like right, I've seen that episode of Black Mirror. I don't want to hear any more about that. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, you... Uh... Dead Funny Uncle, you wrote a horror story yes. for us, which you did a recitation with, with uh, Tom and Nat from Black Decagon. Black, yeah. De- Black Decagon? That's Deca- right. Deca- 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 De- yeah. Yeah, yeah, that'll do. Um, so, have you ever done anything kind of like horror story before? Was that your first one? My first one, yeah. I, I'd never done anything like that before. Um, I haven't really written many short stories, really. Um, and it was, yeah, really fun to be asked and do something that was... I wanted, I wanted to go outside my comfort zone and do something different. Uh, and I thought oh, I'll write something scary, but then your intro for me at the that event was uh, everyone else wrote scary things and James wrote something quite entertaining. And I was like, oh, shit, I failed. But, <laughs> well, no, uh, it was it's funny yours, but it is also well, it can't not be funny. I mean, you've got a lot of dressing up in it. Yeah, yeah, you've yeah. got a lot of um, <laughs> grotesque use of cutlery in it. Yeah, uh, and because of your reading of the particular uh, manic. <laughs> Uh, individual, yeah. and also his occasional use of pizza dough as a hat. Yeah. I feel that there are elements of comedy <laughs> within that. You may think that's the yeah. dark. Imagine that. Imagine a man that. with dough on his head. <laughs> I can't imagine anything more horrific. That's a real thing I saw as well. There was a, a there was a, um, a pizza place where they would put the pizza dough on your head when it was your birthday. Uh, oh, and, what? Uh, and then do they throw the dough away? Well, normally, yeah. Normally the person takes the dough off the head. Because I've been there quite a few times and see a lot of people have the dough on their head. And most of the time, the person would sit there with the dough on their head while everyone sings happy birthday and then take the dough off their head and then they would leave and that would be it. And one kid I saw get the dough on their head and just keep it on (laughs) and just walk out of the pizza restaurant with it on his head still like it was cool, like he was wearing a really cool thing. And uh, I loved it, watching him strut out of there with it on his head. About seven, I think. That is that a Kettering ring, Kettering or Wellingborough thing? Muswell or? Hill. It was. Oh, oh well, yeah. so this is this is London James Acaster, which, which is, is I suppose, I... a very different uh, James Acaster very to uh, Kettering James Acaster. Yeah, is it? yeah. Well, very di- to be honest, yeah, very different. You do change, don't you? If you grow up in a small town uh, where like it's all very insulated, and then you go to London, um, you don't realise how much you've changed until you kind of like you go back later and you're chatting to people who you like. And you go, oh, I still like absolutely know where you're coming from, but you're just 
putting this in a very different way than I'll, I would put it now. Yeah. You know, and, and it, it does it does change the way you, you think about stuff, I think. What were your... We'll move on to books, first of all, which is when you are growing up... In, I mean, Kettering's not a particularly small town, but I yeah. suppose I was lucky. I was brought up quite near London, so you always had access to that. And then and things that, for other people, become kind of, you know, exotic and, and bizarre uh, perhaps weren't as much for me. But I know that, you know, when you're growing up in certain towns especially if you might be a slightly, uh, you know, some of your, your interests are odder. Yeah. You can feel quite... Isolated. Were you that child or were you one of those gregarious uh, kind of, you know, bullying, sporty types? <laughs> no, I was the first child. But but then I didn't feel... Um... The first child of Kettering. Yeah, first ever child. I'm, I'm Kettering's first child. It's on, it's on the sign when you when you go into Kettering, the picture of me. Um, no, yeah, I, I was... But I, I was into all that stuff, but I didn't feel at all uh, alienated. But I didn't feel like no one else was... Uh, into it even though they weren't but like I, I found people who were and we got you know infused about it and then you just kind of Kevin's always been it's got uh, or always when I was growing up a real core of people who really like putting on events and putting on like you know gigs or uh, all day festivals and stuff like that and loads of creative people really trying really hard and putting loads of stuff on um, it just never, nothing ever stuck. So like we, we'd all be yeah. putting stuff on, and you know, we'd be like, "This is the first annual Ketfest or whatever." Uh-huh. And then uh, next then year, all the it, w- it wouldn't be on. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Riddled with, with all the ketamine addicts. So like, it, it was, it was like that really. So there's always loads of people really trying to get stuff off the ground. But that's and, very uh, interesting to me because where I'm from, it, it was the opposite. There was never anybody trying to create things right. like that. And I wonder like what it was about where you were that, yeah. made, that there was that spark of energy and that kind of determination to make but things hang on, happen you're, yeah. you're not that you're that weird distance from london yeah where i remember More sue perkins once when she was doing a tour and she said to her uh, manager don't put me in any of the, those towns that are just the on the m25 yeah that everyone kind of do you know what we can't be bothered to come and see you in london and we have we're not happy with the town we're in but nor are we angry enough to do anything about it what yeah. are you going to do and you were really involved with the music scene as well sorry yeah. i'm crocheting because it's my new thing it helps me to listen it's very nice uh it's your new thing yeah, I just started crocheting. I used to knit. It's the kind of thing that obviously everyone would assume you no, had always done, isn't it? But you, you have not. No. It's a, I'm very, very glad to see it as your new thing. Um, yeah, I did do music stuff. Yeah, growing up, that was the main thing in Ketman was that everyone was doing. Uh, there's loads of bands in in Northampton as well, and there's not as much anymore. But uh, there was loads when I was growing up, so everywhere was getting turned into uh, venues to do gigs in and my first gig it was a band was in this uh it's a boxing ring in a in a, uh, a place where people taught boxing and there's only two gigs there ever and i did both of them and then afterwards it was uh, inspected and people were like this is a death trap you should <laughs> why have you ever had a gig in here so what was your music uh when i started out uh i was like uh 15 so it was all the worst kind of music so it's, it's all new, uh, new metal which is all stuff like in- influenced by people like corn and lip biscuit and stuff so we're all in those kind of bands uh and uh someone sent me recently a recording of the first band i was in which was called pin drop which is a very new metal oh name. that's a great name new metal names are just you got to get two one syllable words and put them together as one word and you, you, you've done it but if uh, you become death metal are you still pin drop where you kind of have a silent j after the p or an umlaut like above the o i think or something like yeah. that you did have to do something like Pindrup. that yeah yeah uh, um uh at an f at the end um, but uh, yeah, and, and it was uh, someone sent me a recording of it. It was like, oh, I found an old recording of your first band, and uh, it's you at a gig. And I was like, all oh, right. And then they sent it to me. I was like, this will be good. I'd listen to it. And, uh, <laughs> it was really not good. Also, what was really embarrassing about it was that the singer was singing lyrics that I had written. And Ooh. I was like, why was I right? I was a 15-year-old, uh, at the time, Christian boy. Why had I written routines about junkies? And, uh, written, like, lyrics about being a junkie. I didn't know what any of that was about. <laughs> like, I just didn't understand. I was just copying bands that I was listening to on free CDs that I got with Kerrang! and stuff. And, like, but were they like possibly doing it? that as well? They so probably every... were. But that's what I remember when Christians. I wrote lyrics briefly. And yeah. uh, what I were f- like, they were just them? awful. They were those kind of, you know, those ones about I feel too deep, deeper than everyone else because I'm really deep and yeah. sad yeah. and lonely because oh, I'm different. You know, all of that. You changed so much when you became a stand up. No, I've realised that I'm fatuous and absurd, just <laughs> noisily so. Yeah. Um, this is the question I wanted to ask is did you have a moment 
where you realised that you were more suited personality-wise to mm. comedy? Like, did you have a day or, like, yeah. a gig or something where you were like, um, oh, this fits better? Well, well... Or do you I, not feel that way? Do you still I think feel it, it was a gradual thing. So it, it was a thing where like, I started doing stand-up just to see if I could do it. As a, uh, I had a, so I had a car crash when I was uh, 18, the first of three car crashes I had. Josie was in the We had one, one together. We had yeah, a great time. Yeah, together, really bonded over it. <laughs> uh, and when I had this car crash, I, start, I got really scared of dying uh, for the mm. first time in my life. I was really like, oh, fuck, I'm going to die one day. So I started doing stuff just to tick off. The bucket list wasn't out yet, the film, so I was ahead of it. But uh, I, uh, one of them was doing stand-up, and then I would do it every now and again just for fun. And mm. I definitely, when, I, when the band stopped, I started doing stand-up all the time. It was just to fill the evenings because I felt bored. Oh, wow. And I just got really... Because all my other friends were like, had got you know jobs that were in full swing or they were at university, which I hadn't done because I was in, in a band. And, uh, and then so I just started doing stand-up to fill the time. And then there's about a year and a half in, I think. I I don't know. It wasn't a specific gig, but there's just a time I was like, oh, actually, I think I'd like to do this as my job now. Wow. So then I moved to London. But like, it, it was. Um, I think it's like any, any job. If you like, throw yourself into it and don't be, because you can go to work and try and get out of doing work. Yeah. And kind of stand there with a broom and look like you're working, and then you will always hate your job. Yes. Or you can go, even though this is a, a bad job or whatever, I'm gonna really get stuck in and She's try and do, do my best well at the time I, that's how I felt at, at, at oh, the time wow. well, I, 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 don't, I don't think this was a bad job but I thought like I hate the fact that I don't know what I'm doing sure I felt like I knew what I was doing when playing the drums and I, I felt like uh, e- other people's opinions didn't matter sure. and that I loved what our songs were so I didn't care if no one else got it and I felt confident that I knew what, the, what I was doing when I was in stand up I didn't know what I was doing I was having to go out and just accept the fact that people weren't laughing at me yes. and that that meant that I'd didn't really fully understand. and I know, even when I did well I didn't understand yes I know like, exactly what you mean. I didn't go away going I know why they laugh I was like okay so they laughed tonight but not last night I didn't like that feeling mm-hmm. um, but I kept on doing it all the time because I was obsessed with it and wanted to do it well and get better at it and then after about yeah a year and a half I remember thinking okay but I, I, don't, I don't know what the gig was I don't know if there's a specific gig I remember doing a gig for Bobby Carroll who is uh, oh, he's a, a nice man. Lovely man, start at the same time as me uh, and uh, kind of links into the book that I've bought in today, actually. But uh, he, um, he... I'd love it for the book you bought was Bobby Carroll's Bobby Book Carl. of Jokes. By James Acaster. <laughs> Bobby Carroll used to work in uh, an Oxfam, didn't he, near yes. Albert Hall? Yeah, because I bought a book not realising it was actually him that had done it, yeah. uh, which was a copy of Little John's Britain. Yeah. And uh, it just had a speech bubble coming out of it. Uh, that someone had drawn on in pen which just said I'm a twat um, <laughs> when I took it to the counter the man kind of said oh you might want some money off that Yeah. Uh, and I said charge me more it's fine you know, it's, yeah. I think it's a bespoke edition. I think I yeah. like it. And then later on, I met Bobby Carroll and he went, oh, yeah, I drew that on. So I love the fact that when he was actually in the bookshop, he think, I'm, I like to help Oxfam, but I also, there's some things that I can't let go. I can't and I cannot let Little John's Britain go onto the shelf without just adding, I'm a twat, and a very nicely done speech bubble. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but that sums up Bobby Carroll. Great, really generous guy, but also uh, will happily ruin stuff for his, for, for, for his own amusement. Um, but yeah, he used to run a gig at the, it's either called the Builder's Arms or the Bricklayer's Arms uh, in Kensington. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do it pretty much every week. And I remember he let me go on last uh, uh, at one point And I had a really, I remember first time I felt in control of a gig and like I knew what I was doing and I knew why they were laughing and afterwards I think he said he paid me some sort of compliment that I remember repeating to my dad when I got home I said this guy said this to me tonight and I feel like I know what I'm doing now and I feel oh like I can God, do that. that's this. amazing so I think it was probably yeah I, I hadn't really thought about that for ages but yeah it's probably that that gig was when I was like right I'm gonna yeah. So Bobby Carroll is responsible Bobby Carroll is more responsible than he realises <laughs> for a lot of things um, yeah. Were you someone who uh, you're saying you're kind of, kind of quite obsessed with stand-up? Yeah. Do you read a lot of uh, biographies, autobiographies? I think I, I used to, and I still do really enjoy certain ones. Born Standing Up by Steve Martin. Yeah, is is have you read that? Yeah, I, I, I was I borrowed it from my friend, and then uh, so I bought it from Joel Tovett, <laughs> and then Milton Jones bought it for me at the same time. So I had two copies uh, on the go, back and forth. But yeah, I think that was, at one point everyone was reading that, and yeah. uh, it was great. I think it's one of the best books yeah. about just and the fact that he is 
one of the most famous stand-ups in the world, yeah. but has all of those years of doing all the oh. things that people whooped and cheered at yeah. when he was famous, but when he's playing these little yeah. clubs in Sausalito, why has the guy got an arrow in his head? Boo! Yeah. Also, Boo. doing things that, you know, previously I probably sneered at and looked down on. Like, he was saying about, you know, basically not doing his own stuff in Whoa. the early days and going around not doing his own And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Like I, I, I thought oh, normally if now if I was on the circuit with that guy I'd be slugging him off to everyone. Oh yeah. You know, but like yeah, he did that and then he moved on and uh, did his own stuff. But yeah, stuff like that's really fascinating. I, I like, I kind of, I, it's always comforting to read about people struggling. But I actually really like reading about my heroes doing stuff that actually I would never do and think is awful and go, oh great, okay, cool. Like if if they can really mess up yeah, <laughs> and do then... stuff that I don't think is cool. That uh, I don't feel so bad. What would be a good example of that? Uh, a good example of people. Um, I I always like it when I hear. Uh, well, I kind of don't admire him as much anymore because even though I think he's good, but when we hear about Bill Hicks, real really like just throwing a gig because he's laid into someone for ages. Oh yeah, that, and you want to go have respect for the people who yeah. really really want to see you. And it's, the, and it's the mistake I'm most guilty of in my past tours. Like this is my I've just finished my, a tour now, and it's the first tour I've ever done where I haven't at some point thrown the gig back in the audience's faces <laughs> and ruined everyone's night. And like I, I, <laughs> I kind of done it progressively less on each tour and got control of it more. And this was the first one where I was like, okay, I'm not gonna do that see, to them. It's an interesting. Oh no no. I think my personality is too subservient because I'm always like, well, I haven't got them yet, but yep. but if I just keep trying, maybe yeah. I'll get them eventually. You know? Yeah. Whereas I feel like I like I've been doing a Christmas show this week, and at the end of the show, I haven't been able to help myself because it's such a fun show, and I've like put so much into like giving people things in it. At the end, I'm like, if you haven't enjoyed the show, go fuck yourselves. Go yeah. and fuck yourselves. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> in such a cheery way. <laughs> but it does feel so nice to be a little bit like mm. I. I'm trying to have more status here, you know. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, sorry. No, I was going to say, yeah, the Bill Hicks thing is when you sometimes watch some of that footage mm. of him just really, you know, that level of abuse where you go, well, this is uncomfortable for everyone, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, he was I, 32 when he died. I know, that's the other thing. Mm. You suddenly go, I mean, what? Yeah, you're, yeah, he's yeah. A, a mere 15 years younger than me and uh, seven years older than James <laughs> and you. <laughs> uh, I got tone policed on Twitter by somebody because I made the following joke, which I think was really good, which yeah. was... I can't believe Bill Hicks is only 32 when he died. I'm 34 and I still haven't died. <laughs> Which I thought was a good yeah. joke. Because the point of it is he's yeah, achieved funny. far more than I have. Like sure. That's the yeah, yeah. nub of the joke. Is like, yeah. wow, he did so much. And someone was like, that's not very nice, is it? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, but well, you always people, I'm always getting that, that from your fans mm. on Twitter. They love that. It wasn't yeah. a fan, it was an industry colleague. But I, I think there mm. are those things. Well, that's the problem with... Uh, joking in certain mediums, which is uh, mm. people, the, the again, it's that Rorschach test thing. What can be projected on a sentence mm. is yeah. remarkable in terms of the supposed intention. You go, yeah. really was a silly joke. Well, no, I don't think it was. I think it came from somewhere else, actually. Somewhere yeah. very evil. Yeah. I, I really was the word linked to that word. Yeah. It was silly. I, I did a, a, um, uh, I did something on TV which was about, it was a comedy about a, a murder case. And uh, someone who clearly hadn't watched it and had just like seen the the blurb for it, uh, just tweeted at me and the BBC saying, "Oh, a comedy of murders. Funny now, is it? What next? A sitcom about a rape trial? Shame on you!" I was like, "Oh yeah, because that's exactly what we just did. That's uh, <laughs> that's what we were doing." And also, it's like I've decided to be angry about this in advance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What um. Actually, before we get on to, because I, I want to ask you more about other um, maybe stand-up biographies or autobiographies you've read. Because yeah. that one, I'm trying to remember the name now of the one, the the Bill Hicks one. Uh, there's a couple of them. Oh, Cynthia True did one, I think. Yes, Screaming with Laughter. And it's like a good man. Or something, something like man, that, isn't, isn't it? it? It's like... Uh, Which was Love, love All the mate. People, is that a oh, yeah, Love All the one. People. Yeah, that might be the... Um, so what... Uh, no, I was just remembering when you say about always having a little bit to do with the audience during a tour. Yeah. I remember seeing you shortly after you had played Lincoln. And oh, God, uh, yeah. you had a member of the audience who hated you yes. and said something very aggressive to you yes. and then was lucky enough to be going to the late night all the guest stars <laughs> from the Lincoln Festival show <laughs> and so wouldn't be realising that you would then be walking yeah. on again to do more of the stuff. So, so twice, yeah. How did that go? That was great. Uh, he, uh, I normally, so I've been to Lincoln every tour I've done. So I've, I've toured all six of my shows. It's a tough nut to crack, isn't it? 
And yeah, oh, very tough. I don't like, think I've ever cracked it. I've never cracked Lincoln. Right. Oh, I, I did that one year. So weirdly, this is the one year I had a good one. Because in previous years, I'd had like, you know, I remember going on and a guy instantly heckling me and Lincoln saying like, you haven't really sold many seats, have you, mate? As soon as I walked <laughs> in and it's like, Jesus. Like, I, I thought that. And, and this one was the first one. It was going well. And I was like, oh, great. And then this guy got up uh, and started walking out halfway through. And then he shouted, you're about as funny as chlamydia, mate. And uh, and I was like, I think I said something like, um, I wouldn't know if how how funny is chlamydia, sir. I, 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 I wouldn't know. I've never had it. And he said, Of course you wouldn't have had it. I was like, Sorry, is that? Is that? And then so he kind of walked out angry. And then yeah, straight after that, like literally in the same room as me, uh, I was straight after my show doing uh, mixed bill best of the fest show because it was the Lincoln Comedy Festival, and he didn't know I was on, and he bought a ticket for that. And someone told me he's in the audience. And so I went out and obviously said, I explained to the audience what happened with him in my show and said that I was like chlamydia because I'd returned. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, he, I, I basically said to him, what have you been up to since I saw you last? <laughs> what, what, what have you been doing? He was like, mainly trying to get a refund for your show. Mm. And I was like, how did it work out? And they went, well, they said I couldn't have one. Uh, so this is it's up to you. And I went, ah, you better laugh real hard during this set. And then, and, and then you'll get the refund for the first. If you're a real good audience member now. And he was oh like, no, I think you're shit, mate. And then like I, I focused my whole set on him Amazing. to the point where half the audience were really loving it and really glad that I'd spent my whole set on him. And half the audience who weren't glad about it were very angry and was shouting. So other people started shouting out and going, just move on. Don't let him get to you. Why, oh, why are you dwelling on this? Just do your jokes and all this. I, I, you kind of like, I, I think when they say that, a part of me thinks, yeah, I agree. I probably should <laughs> do my on. jokes and move on. But then a part of me is also like, yeah, but I do my jokes every night and this hardly ever happens. And this is this is fun. I've never had this happen to me before. And I'm not angry at the, this guy. I just think it's quite funny that he's in this situation. And uh, I, I think you guys just feel uncomfortable because you think this is more awkward than it is. When me and this man don't care. Yeah. Like, he doesn't care about my feelings. I don't care about my feelings. Yeah. Uh, and we can both just like have some fun with it. Well, in, in reading comedy biographies, autobiographies, were there any way you thought that has helped now arm me for possible chlamydia abuse situations or other <laughs> things? Yeah, uh, it's more... Uh, the one that really... Uh, it's actually not a comedy... Or, or, I read uh, uh, E from the Eels, his autobiography. Oh, called, yeah. Great things, book. Yeah, things the grandchildren should know. And, like, uh, I think just you read something by someone like him who's just had such a very tough and... <laughs> bleak life and had a bit of a hard time with things and still managed to consistently uh just churn out, out albums every, every year and uh i think stuff like that is more because just go well i've actually got quite an easy life uh everything's kind of okay and uh all i really need to do is um is just constantly like create stuff and put it out there and not i think what, what i like about the about eels is that uh he doesn't seem to be like right everything's got to be a masterpiece it's like what do i want to do now i'm just going to do that and mm -hmm. release it and i think just that constant thing of like you know go i'm going to do the next show i'm going to do the next one and i'm not going to think about not be a, be a perfectionist when i was in yeah. bands there were a lot of people who were uh who never did a gig but they were amazing and they, they would like i'd go around to like you know hear them practice and they'd have these they'd build up these really amazing bands and they never do a gig because it wasn't perfect yet yeah. So they never stopped working in T-shirt shops or something. Yeah, and they never get anything done. And and I think yeah. as well, like, I have a real theory that, like, music and art, everything is relevant to the time it's made. Yeah. So the quicker you can get it made and get it out, the more real and relevant and vital it is. Yeah. And, like, the longer you end up having to, like, work on something, the deader it becomes because it's yeah. not real anymore, you know? Yeah, it's got to be relevant to you and where, where you are. Like, all, all of your shows are always, like, what you're excited about at the time. Yeah. So you could line them all up and watch them all and it's a proper you know it's like that's how you know Joe's especially your political shows and you see how you you get enthusiastic about it and develop and then you you yeah. learn it more you're questioning yourself and then and, and it's it's like you see someone's it's thought like process developing that way yeah yeah see I find that, that that bit though of the band that never go out and keep trying to perfect it I can totally yeah. understand because I thought now that I don't really do very much stand up yeah and I yeah, uh, you just do six gigs a week now no I don't really I really <laughs> do almost nothing and uh, I did an ACMS gig the other day of just a but I realised part of the one of the reasons I think I'm enjoying not doing it mm. is the best bit of coming up with a new show 
is imagining how you're going to incorporate all these ideas and imagining yeah. what the ultimate show is going to be. But of course, it's also vital that when you do it, it doesn't quite fulfil that hope. It's that mm. that great line we talked about a while ago: the horse's mouth. Um, the the character in that, the artist, yeah. who when he finishes his painting that's taken months, he then just leans against the wall and he goes, "Why doesn't it look like it does in here?" Right, and, just, yeah. and it's that. So weirdly, with stand-up, I've never had that. Because with stand-up, I never ha imagined something beforehand. So when I was in bands, it was I imagined my whole life. And all the albums we'd release, all the festivals we'd play at, all the, all the goals I had in, the, in my whole career, and what, what the band would be like, what the artwork would look like for our debut album and everything. And then with stand-up, because I wasn't going into it with, like, this is going to be my job, I was just going into it as, like, one gig to another and figuring stuff out. Mm -hmm. I've never had that. So with each show I've done, I just start writing, and then it... And then I figure out what it is at the end, usually in May or June when I've got all the stuff. So I've, I've never had it before when I know beforehand this is what it will be like, which I think is why sometimes it's like I don't. So you're saying about the story I wrote mm. for the, the thing. I knew what I wanted that to be beforehand and then wrote it. And I got I, I was surprised at how different I felt afterwards that I was I was, cause I was really happy with it. And I was like, oh, I feel like I've achieved something there because that was what I wanted to do and I've done it. Yeah. Whereas with, with, with stand-up, I don't think I ever feel... Like, I never feel like I've achieved something there because I always feel like, oh, I fluked that. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I always feel like I, I, I just put a bunch of stuff together, figured out what it is, kind of, you know, after the event mm. made sense of it so I can talk, talk about, people, talk about yeah. it with people. But like, I go, oh, that's, that's that then. And I don't feel like... Yep, that's the, that's what I set out to achieve with it. But that makes sense to me because I feel like... Sorry, I'm moving away from the mic. That makes sense to me because I feel like when you're writing a stand-up show, you do have to just barrel in and because you're you're in a process of finding out things out, you mm. know, through doing it. And I always find that, like, once the show is completed, I'm like, oh, wow, I mentioned boats three times. Yeah. I must have been thinking about boats quite a lot and I didn't even realise and what become the motifs of the show. And it's almost like the show tells you yeah. Question uh, answers questions for you, yeah. you know, in making it. Yeah. And also I was gonna say there's two different types of stand up writers, aren't there? There's people who are like, How's your show? Well I finished it in March. Yeah. Do it. And those shows are like boring. Uh, yeah. And then there's people who are like, Keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay, yeah. it's ready, you know. Yeah, I, then... I, I never want it to be ready. I think I I just keep changing it on tour as well. Yes. And because there's always bits I don't like and I should never have to go out there and, and say a joke I don't like or anything like that because that's ridiculous on my own boss. I, I, why would I put myself <laughs> through that? So, um, yeah, I just think always change it because even routines that... Like the first routine I wrote for the show I've just finished touring, by the, uh, you know, it was, it was one of those ones that was really working in, in the autumn and then in the new year, it kind of was a bit more hard work. It was still kind of working. And then in preview season, stopped working. And then I went oh. to Edinburgh. And it was the end of the show as well. And suddenly, like, was harder in Edinburgh than it had been ever before. And I had to just go, even though it worked before, and you're doing it the same, you've got to change it. Yeah. And um, I didn't stop changing it on tour. And I'm about to do another tour of it next year. And I'm going to continue to work on it because it's still not there. Even though... For a few months at the beginning, it always worked, and I was like, "Oh, I can't believe I've already this written one's great. the end of my Edinburgh show. This is great." Yes. But like it, yeah, things change, and you kind of have to stop sulking about it and go, "Right, just keep on working at it and, and change it, and don't just go, well, that's it now.'" Also, things come back as well. Like I had this joke six years ago about um, feeling as if I'm constantly being pinched by the Conservatives. Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was basically like you don't know what it's like to live under a government you ideologically oppose until it happens, and then when it happens, it's like you're being pinched every day. And yeah. then it was a bit where it says, "Oh, you're fine. Look, why are you being so angry? You're fine." Like they sent a cat through the window to pinch me. Yeah. And I brought it in in the show I was doing um, in New York because it was they just had their election. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for six years, I thought that was the end of the joke, and then. <laughs> Oh, I like having a cheeky crucible joke, and then people laugh. And then one day I was like, I like having a cheeky crucible joke. You can find out where the Arthur Miller fans are, and then I can take their names down and report them to the authorities. <laughs> yeah. Which is like bringing it full circle back to the crucible. I was so pleased with myself, and I thought, God, yeah. I would never have thought that I'd be able to six years after the fact yeah. resurrect a joke and make it better. It was yeah. like, oh, you know. I think all, all the time, if you go away from a joke like that and you do it, just decide to do it again, and then you find a laugh and go, Why didn't I? Just 
do that in oh, the yeah. first. It's right there. It was all, and also I always go like it's always a bit where you go, yep, that was the lull in the routine, and I just never sorted it out because <laughs> the routine hadn't ended anyway, and the premise was funny enough at the beginning, so I always let there be this lull there where there should clearly be a line, and I never did it, and now I've just improvised it on stage, and that should have been the line always. Yeah, always I always, always should have done it like that. And then have you ever had it where you record your stuff and then you perform it again after you've recorded it and you add to it and you're like, oh, well, that's that fucked. Yeah, Can't yeah. That. Oh, it's yeah. not canon. Yeah, I haven't done it because I haven't done anything like that yet. I haven't like recorded and released anything but uh yeah that's my I, I, I that's can... your next thing isn't it yeah that's that's next year so i, I hope i don't get that but I'm, I'm sure i will how did you find the process going back to when you uh read your story the other yeah because like, i've i find that just because of the haphazard and shoddy way that i write that sometimes when i've done things of reading out a story that i've written yeah publicly and it's published and there's nothing you can do about it you go <laughs> yeah what a clumsy bloody <laughs> sentence that is. Sure. and i wonder did you have uh any moment as you were reading out and also seeing the rhythm of reaction from yeah. that audience i thought was a little bit they held back a little bit sure yeah um did you suddenly go ah oh, mr trick or yeah. oh i could have tightened that up or were you just like no this is a story now yeah, I think I felt I felt happy with it, but but because I mean mainly because I decided to write it. So uh, the story is um, the to do lists of two different uh, people. So they've uh, so there's no actual, you know, I'm not writing a story like saying you know, and then this happened, and and, and so I think with that I would be much more uh, uber sensitive and critical about my writing because that's when I don't like my writing. It's when I I would write you know an actual story and tell it you know whatever in a normal narrative so writing it as two to-do lists I was kind of fine with clumsy stuff where it was like oh that's just something if it's meant to be a to-do list that someone has written it would come across like that sometimes they would, you know, especially when one of them is written by a psychopath then it's like yeah some, some of it's going to come across as like poor writing but that's fine because any time I do write something badly it's covered up by the it's the character how, yeah how I presented it anyway um, so yeah I was quite I was quite happy with it at the time. And I felt like, you know, it was a small cinema with not many people there. Uh, I didn't expect a huge reaction. I thought it was very... I mean, it is very yeah. funny. I mean, even though you were saying you didn't realise... It's got so much... And I think because it also with your delivery. Because I yeah. went back and had a look at it. And, of course, now I, I read it in a different way. Yeah. Because you're trapped in, in my yes. head again. <laughs> there is no escape for you. Um, we should find out. You brought a book along with you. Yeah. So, uh, unless it's uh, obviously by Mark Everett, we haven't covered it yet. No, it's interesting. We're talking about all books. So, I bought If Chins Could Kill <gasps> by Bruce Campbell. Yeah. Uh, Confessions of a B-Movie Actor. That I is a very that. good choice. Yeah? You yep. like this book? Yes. Great, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Tell me a bit about it. I know, obviously, yes. Evil Dead. And yes. So I know Bruce Campbell, but I have yeah. not read it. Yeah, well, so I was... This is how I discovered him. Um, huh. So I, I was just in a bookshop, and I. it was around the time when I, I was just about to start stand-up and didn't know what I wanted to do with my life at all. And Confessions of a B-movie actor jumped out to me because it was like oh that sounds like someone who kind of isn't quite doing you know it's not like confessions of a superstar where it's like oh, it's doing a, kind of, a bit more of a low-key kind of thing but he seems he seems like a happy kind of guy i just wanted to read about someone doing something in the you know, creative that, that wasn't very well known yeah and so i kind of got into him through this book and it's all about you know his career and how they made evil dead at the beginning and how that started and uh and just, yeah, his whole career up till, I think, it's when he was about to do Bubba Hotep, oh, which yeah, is yeah. a film where he plays Great Elvis. Great film. Yeah. And uh, I, I then bought a Bubba... So I bought Bubba Hotep, liked it, bought a Bubba Hotep T-shirt, and then on my like third gig in London, turned up wearing it and sat down and took it off. And a young man near me went, oh, 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 Bruce Campbell. And that young man was Bobby Carroll. And, uh, uh, and, uh, it all comes and back. And, and, oh, this is a disaster. And, and, and We've and still Nick got Held 10 minutes well, to go, so we can't have that as the closing point. Yeah, yeah, that would have been nice, wouldn't it? This is what I want to ask Sorry, you. no, continue. You were saying about Nick Helm as well. Nick Helm was also there and was all, and also did the point. So they both kind of did the point at the same time, and that's how I became friends with both of them, really. Oh was God, like, it was wow. like, oh, we all like Bruce Campbell. We all, all seen Bubba Hotep. Um, 
Who's that? I'm trying to remember who wrote the actual short story. It's based on a short story. It's a short isn't it? story, yeah. I don't know who, um, wrote, who wrote it. It's, it's for it. those of you who don't know, basically, it's about um, Elvis Presley in an old people's home, uh, and his best friend there is John F. Kennedy, who is a small black man, yeah. uh, who explains that uh, after the pretend assassination attempt, he was kind of died black. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Elvis, no one believes, is Elvis because he briefly swapped being Elvis with an Elvis impersonator, but unfortunately, yeah. that Elvis impersonator died yeah. when he was pretending to be Elvis. Yes. And it's this, and it's about what's beautiful about that film is it's predominantly about aging. Yes, it's it, it is also about uh, an evil kind of mummy demon that yeah. is killing people in the uh, old people's uh, homes, people sucking home. their souls out of their buttholes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, is it from what I remember? Well, I watched it again recently because I was around my parents' house and uh, I was like, let's watch something that you haven't seen, and they and. That was one of the. They chose that, and I was like, I don't think you guys will like this. And they said they would watch it, and they loved it. And I was really surprised at how much they loved it as well. Um, but yeah, it's a really good, just like fun film. And uh, the, but this book ends with him basically describing, oh, I'm, I'm about to do this. He says, he says, yeah, I'm about to do this, and I think it's quite fun. And so I instantly came away from the book wanting to watch that. Is he somebody movie. who's? Did he make all those things happen himself? Like him and uh, Sam Raimi, and uh, I think. One other guy who was the producer, who I can't remember his name now, they all made Evil Dead happen again and put their own money into it and uh, and oh. did that together, yeah. Um, so, like, those those days when they're kind of doing it off their own back, especially when you're, you know, in the place that I was at the time and I didn't really... I didn't have any... I didn't go to university, I had no qualifications, I'd just been in a band and I wanted to do stuff off my own back. It was good to read about people doing that who equally didn't have that much of a clue yeah, and just made it happen and, and, and did it. It, it was just because they followed it through, they followed through on their plans yeah. and uh, I think that's what I needed at the time. But I think so much about living a creative life is following, you know, saying you're going to do it and then doing it. Yeah. Not just talking about it, actually yeah. doing it. Um, I, this is what I want to ask you about. What I like about your stand-up shows, and if you've not seen James live yet, if you've just seen him on television... On the telly. On the telly, you have to go and see James's uh, actual shows. Because um, what I find really interesting is how you have a fictionalised conceit in yeah. them. And, like, I wanted to ask you about that. Like, do you see yourself, like... like how do you think about it and how do you approach it with the fact that you also do things that are, like, personal, observational, and then you will have kind of a framework that isn't real yeah um i when i started stand up everything had to be true and that was my rule so right. when i when i was uh, open spots like everything's got to be true and i genuinely thought that anyone doing stuff that wasn't true was taking the easy Phony. way out yeah. i thought it'd be so easy just to make stuff up <laughs> uh, and actually taking stuff that happens to you and making that funny is really hard so like that was what i was doing all the time and then i was getting really annoyed because people didn't believe me I was telling them stuff that, that really happened. Like, so once after a gig in uh, Andover, I ended up sleeping in a bush in Basingstoke. In, in a dress. Yeah, I was wearing a dress in a bush in Basingstoke and I stayed there all night. And I would tell that on stage and um, people would never believe it. They'd come up to me afterwards and go, that didn't happen. And I'd say like the detail about like putting the dress on in the bush. And every time I said about that, the audience, I'd see them go, oh, oh, he thinks that's funny, is it? To make, <laughs> to, to, to make that up and say that he wore a dress. Well, that's hilarious. Whereas, you know, it's funny if you know it happened, but if you think that I've made it up, you think, oh, do you think men wearing dresses is funny, mate? Is that what, is that what you, <laughs> you are saying? So, like, and I got really annoyed about it. And so I just started uh, lying because I thought that was more... Also, I think you just get to a point where you go, you know what I'd like to do? And I'm going to do it anyway and I don't care. Yeah. So when you hear about Jack D nearly quitting stand-up, and he, he just honoured the gigs that he had in the diary, so he started doing them grumpy because he didn't, he didn't care anymore, and then yeah. it worked. And I remember Helen Arney uh, doing like stand up, and she w wasn't really loving it, and she, she, she was kind of like, "Oh, I might, I might quit this. Uh, I'm just gonna do the rest of the gigs I've got with a ukulele because, you know, I'd like to do that. Because why not? Yeah. yeah, I'd like to do that before I quit. And then it's like, oh, suddenly everybody Likes is responding it. to this differently, and it's going better. And uh, I felt a bit like that. I was like, well, if you don't want to hear that, I'm just going to lie and make <laughs> stuff up, and that'll be fun. And I just did it for fun. And then suddenly, yeah, you're like, oh, this is this is this is better. But you still work stuff in that's still, real. It, well, what I found was, so it, it, it was with the show I did a few years ago about being an undercover cop. And, and, and at the start of it, all I knew was that I wanted to say that I was an undercover cop for the show. Yeah. I was undercover in the comedy world as a comedian, but I was infiltrating a gang of drug dealers. And uh, I, it was accidental 
the personal stuff got in, involved in it because I didn't really cause at, at that time I was writing the show I'd just come out of a relationship where I was living with someone and I had to move out and I uh, got very anxious during the end of the relationship and afterwards I was analysing who I was and didn't feel like I knew myself and knew who I was and so because that was going on in my head naturally while I was writing a show about being an undercover cop because I just thought it'd be fun yeah. it bleeds into each other and it's all about identity and not knowing who you are pretending to be someone that you're not and it was quite a happy accident that by... But it's not an accident, really, is it? It's because not really, some you, part of just you it, yeah. felt like that. And that's yeah. why you chose to write that conceit. And yeah. then it fits so wonderfully in because you're writing all of it. Yeah, so it's coming from inside you, but you're not analysing it at the time. Yes. And then in May you go, oh, all of this is about identity and all yeah. of this is about not knowing who I am. And, uh, and so I was like, I don't feel like I can really do the show without, at the end... I remember speaking to Nish, uh, Nish Kumar, a very good friend of mine, and, and uh, during writing that, he was like, you kind of need to tell them why, where this has all come from because they, they're owed that. They've been with you for an hour, and as an audience, they kind of owed an explanation of why you've been saying you're a cop for the whole thing. Yeah. And because it is because of your relationship, but it is because of how you feel, and they can possibly relate to that as well. And also, I, I kind of... I feel like I only want to say personal stuff when I don't think it's been covered loads in comedy. Mm. So I hadn't seen a lot of comics talk about... Uh, breakups in that way of saying like how you get really needy at the end of it or something like that and, and you, you don't really know who you are I hadn't really seen many comedians talk about that side of things and mm-hmm. so I thought oh I'll say that because I think that's a that's an observation in the same way that you know whatever you know trying to walk past someone in the street you both go the same direction is an observation you know so yeah. I I wanted to put that at the end and that was the first one when I, I did anything personal and did a massive lie so it kind of both happened at the same time oh wow and then uh, the next show I was deliberately not trying to imitate that I was like just just do a show and like don't try and recreate the same show you just did and just mm-hmm. naturally anyway I, it was the same thing I wanted to write a show about doing jury duty on, on, a, on a murder case I thought that would be that was just what I wanted to do. Yeah. And then as I was going along, realised it was all about doubt and certainty and that it's actually about me stopping being a Christian when I was in my early 20s. So, like, uh, you don't realise it until you, yeah, you kind of get to that point and go, oh, that's what I've been writing about. Yeah. Um, and actually, the last show I did was the first one where at the beginning I kind of did know because I, I was like, oh, I want to do a thing about going into witness protection and having a fresh start. And that's just something that I'm very conscious of anyway. Is always like every time I have a bad gig, I want to go to Kenya and start, <laughs> and start my life again. So like uh, I kind of that was the only one going in where I knew both aspects of it and was yeah. like, oh okay, I, I know where I'm going. And, which meant it was quite different in terms of writing it because you kind of knew the end point. Whereas normally I don't get that until May. That is exciting. Oh, no, I no, keep, that's fine. no, because today I just keep talking over you, Robin. It's fine. You Your audience you love say. that. Your audience want that. You can oh, go. Oh, poor <laughs> Robin. It's hard to be. Uh, <laughs> Me and Simon Jenkins. No, go on. No, no, I really wanted to hear. What no, you no, no, I wanted to hear what you got to say. Get on with it. I didn't have much to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, the uh, I, I was when, when dealing with these ideas, which end up being uh, you know so many ideas of, of traits of humanity. Is there, do, have you already got plans to write a book? Would you want to? Would mm. or do you feel that the best way of developing these ideas for you, the the mind that you are now, yeah. is to turn them into shows that you actually talk to people? So I'm writing a book at the minute. So I'm writing a book. It'll be out next year in August. Uh, and that weird is that fiction. Not no. So so weirdly, that is non-fiction. That is all true stories. So all those stories that I did as an open spot that didn't work. Yeah. I went on the. On Josh Widdicombe had a podcast on XFM for a few years, and I would go on it every week. And it was just a way of me taking those routines I could do nothing with and doing them on the radio. Because Josh was like started at the same time as me, and he likes a lot of those stories because he knows they're true. And he also would be like, oh, yeah, he's dying again doing this story. Because <laughs> no one believes this. He was like, well, get on and we'll, we, we can all just... So I'd just come on the show and tell that story to Josh and whoever the guest was and they'd chip in. And, uh, and like, recently, like, some guy put them all on YouTube and then a publisher heard it and now wants to make a book of it. So it's easy um, for you because you just transcribe it and then it's all Yeah, I just write them all down. And then Josh chips in and says this. <laughs> but... Um, and that was we were saying earlier about like you know just you discover narratives just flukily and so like because because all the stories are my life anyway uh you don't realize like the links you were saying about doing a show and going oh i mentioned uh boats or whatever was it three times or whatever and like i was like oh i have a phobia of singing and i didn't realize until i've read the read all this back that you know i tried to do a christmas play in school when i had to sing I couldn't make noise come out of my mouth. I, d- I couldn't do it. And there was that big moment for me. And that there's loads of these things later on where, like, you know, as a 
in my late teens, I tried to force myself. I went to karaoke night on my own in order to try and confront this and sing. I had singing lessons for a while. Um, I, I had, had this song that I sung in secondary school in front of the class, it was kind of a comedy song, but they loved it so much they wanted me to keep on doing it every lesson. And I, it made me hate it as well. It made me hate singing even more because I Aww. had to constantly get up and sing this stupid comedy song in front of my class. How did it go? It was. Uh, have to sing it, it was. It was. It. it was about Humpty Dumpty. It was the we had to take the Humpty Dumpty nursery rhyme and uh, apply it to a different style of music. So we sang it to the tune of Lulla Bumba. It's called Lulla Lulla Humpty. Uh, and it was me going, Lulla 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 Humpty, over and over again and doing that. And people it was loved like, it because you were born to perform. My class loved it. And it became the reward for every time my class was good. No! So if they behaved at the end of the lesson, they would get a rendition of Lulla Lulla Humpty. But you're not a toy. I know. Well, eventually I retired on stage. <laughs> I, I, said, I, I said, miss, I can't do this anymore. Um, <laughs> and she said, you've let down everyone yeah. in your class. <laughs> And obviously, there's the three car crashes are in the in the book. So oh, Josie makes the. I would love to. Well, hear Josie is what in. You, say about... you are in three of them. Oh, I... You are in three of the stories in the book. Which one? I'm so. So proud. there is when so they're all on the tour. So mm. there's obviously when we had the car crash. Yeah. There is when uh, I went for a drink with my sister and brother-in-law, and an actor that I admire was in the the bar, and then I came back and met up with you and Johnny, and then you wanted to go and get dinner in the same bar. And I was like, I can't go there. I've just bothered this man. So I went up to him and said I, I, I loved him. So you guys gave me a hoodie and a hat to wear as, <laughs> as, as a disguise. And then he bumped into me anyway and was even more scared that I would disguise <laughs> myself. Uh, it was, I, I can never pronounce his name. So it, he plays Mr. Echo in Lost. Is Adewale. Right. He's like, he's in a lot of different stuff. He was in Oz and stuff like that. And I've just gone up to him and be like, I love Lost, man. And you're, you're my favourite character in Lost. And then he was... We went back and, he, and no, I said hi for him. Where were we? I don't remember that. No, not in them. It was. Uh, oh, that was the last, last night of the tour. Last night of the tour, yeah. And uh, the third one is when me and you were in Paris and you went into the uh, Euro shop and I was outside and there was a dog there. Oh, yeah. And everyone was going past. It was a massive dog that was like the size of a human. Oh, yeah, I remember and, uh, it was like, And people were going past and patting the dog and they thought the dog was mine. It was a really funny looking dog. It was like, it was, it was like a six foot man sat down in a shaggy dog costume. And all the French people would stroke the dog and say something to me about the dog in French. Because I didn't speak French, I'd just say we oui every time. Uh, and then one person went past, stroked the dog, said something, really laughed about the dog, said something about the dog to me. I said we, oui, and then a lady double taped, looked at both of us and stopped and bollocked us both in the street for whatever I just agreed to about the dog. And I was so scared. I was thinking the whole time, I've just agreed to bang in this dog. Like, there's, <laughs> I, I feel like I've just agreed to bang in the dog, and uh, and then they all, they went away, and the, the dog went. The owner came out, took the dog away, and Josie came out, and all these all the characters are gone. <laughs> and I had to tell Josie what happened. I remember Josie going, "I reckon they were saying, do you want to ban this dog?" <laughs> and, and I was like, "I feel good to be understood again. I immediately have someone understand you." So like, yeah, there's three things during oh, that tour. That's good, but that it was... helps as well. It's like the narrative of it. That being in there, being like, that was a stepping stone for me being an open spot to being a professional comic. Yeah. Was Josie Long giving me a chance? Thanks, day. guys. <laughs> um, the, uh, we've run out of time. Uh, just quickly, what, what do you read when you're on tour? Do you, uh, is there a specific, because yeah. sometimes you can't immerse yourself as much in certain books. Some yeah. people can't. Anyway, what are the kind of things you read when you're on tour? Very bad at reading when I'm on tour. Uh, there's only a few people that I, I, I can read Dave Eggers very easily. Uh, What's your so, favourite of his? My favourite is his is Hologram for the King. Uh, but I also really like uh, You Should Know Our Velocity, which yeah, is the second too. book. So those are my two kind of favourites. I'm reading his latest one at the minute, and it's the first... Well, it's not the first... I didn't actually like Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. I didn't like it. I but, liked uh, the first 73 pages, and you know in the front of it, he says yeah. the first 73 pages are brilliant, and then it right, turns okay, off. Yeah. And I always thought, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, it? yeah, spot on, mate. But um, yeah, his latest one, I'm at, uh, 80 pages in at the minute, and I'm I'm struggling, because it's, it's like him... Writing a Dave Eggers, him going, I've got to write a book like Dave Eggers. Ooh. It kind of feels a bit like, yeah, when people try and do themselves. But things but like, like that are so I, ho- I hope that I'm wrong and it'll be great because he is one of my favourites. Yeah, um, I think for so both really of cool. you, what page do you give up on a book? How far will you yeah. go through a book before you go, this, I can't, it's not. Do you know, most books I don't like, I won't give up on them. They'll just become, I'll get back to you, I'll get back to you. Like, I never go, fuck this. In fact, Mm. there was a book that I was very disappointed by, which was the first novel of someone whose short stories I'd totally loved. Um, And the novel, I couldn't bear it. And the more I read it, the more angry and upset I got, because I really hated it. (laughs) But I was like, I have to finish this. And when I finished it, it wasn't even like, it was like end of term. There was no relief. It was just like, well... Yeah, I finished it. 
Yeah. And I, I hated it. I think it depends on the book. So, like, if I'm reading uh, a book that everyone... It's like a classic that everyone says is amazing. I will persevere a lot longer and maybe make it halfway, maybe over halfway before I go, this isn't for me. Yeah. But when I tried to read... Uh, what was it called? A history of something in Ukrainian. The, the Tractors, yeah, 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 yeah. I got one page in and went... I can't do this. <laughs> so, like, yeah, so, uh, you know. I should probably you? have done that with Morris's List of the Lost. Right. Oh, is that his <laughs> novel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. But I read it all because it was just, there's something so fascinating about seeing someone so brilliant create such a very, very, well, not even a strange thing. It's something that's yeah. not even strange. It's just, <laughs> how? Why? Oh. Anyway, yeah. we've run out of time. So thank you very much, James A. Caster. I'm going to see you later on uh, this evening. See you at the Not when people evening. are hearing what are this recording. Uh, he will be joining uh, us at the Compendium of Reason uh, oh, this evening. The Christmas uh, yeah. And what are you doing next, beginning next year? Is there anything you want to plug now? Uh, I will be touring. I'm touring my last three shows. Uh, I'm touring all of them in, in different venues, doing three consecutive nights in God, each venue. Hard to uh, keep them all in your head. Yeah, so I've got to keep them all in the old head. So the, the Undercover Cop show, the uh, Jury Duty show, and the Witness Protection Show. I'm doing them uh, in different venues across the country. JamesAcaster.com for the tickets. Brilliant. And you're going on back to America, aren't you, Josie? Uh, yeah, and I'm also touring around the UK in February and March. Please, please come to my show, Something Better. Uh, it is fine. It is good. It's a good show. I've seen it. I enjoyed Great. it. Thanks, guys. You're I laughed friend. and I was tired. Oh. I was so often tired now. I wasn't. Best to kill a mockingbird routine I've ever seen. Thank you. Oh, I had a really interesting experience the other day. Right, we're stopping now because okay. we've got to do another one. <laughs> Thank you very much to all our Patreon supporters and also our one-off supporters via PayPal. This week, we would like to thank these Patreon supporters. Richard Sully, Andrew Grafham, Thomas Robinson, Martin Court, Marilyn Audsley, Phil Clifford, Louis Law and Smark Maltby. And this week's Patreon Box of Books winner is Sally Gran. So congratulations, Sally, if you get in... So congratulations, Sally, if you get in contact with us, either by emailing contact at cosmicgenome.com or using at cosmicgenome on Twitter, we can get your prize of a box of books out to you. And as always, if you'd like to help support Book Shambles, we'd be very grateful. And you can go in the running to win a box of books, and there's exclusive episodes just for Patreon supporters as well. Uh, you go to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles, and all the links are there for that, as well as all the past episodes, reading lists, and more. And Book Shambles will be expanding very soon. Cosmic Shambles is coming and you can go to cosmicshambles.com and sign up to the mailing list there for free and we will let you know what's happening and when it's happening as well as when we hit the road in March and April to Australia for the Cosmic Shambles live tour and New Zealand as well. Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Christchurch, Wellington and Auckland. All the dates are at CosmicShamblesLive.com. We'll be out there with Robin and Josie and Helen Chersky, Lucy Green, Matt Parker and lots of amazing local guests. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you all again next week. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm-hmm.